It's good to be back with you. I haven't had a chance to listen to Todd's message from last week, but I saw the preview and I know it's amazing. So thank you, Todd, for preaching. And when we, I'm just so grateful to God for this house, that we have people that can preach. I I just always ask the, I try to remember from time to time to remind and ask the elders, hey, anybody got a word stirring? And when I asked the elders, anybody got a word stirring? Because I'm going to be out of town. Todd said, yeah, I've had one stirring and I'm glad you asked. So I can't wait to hear it. Hope you were blessed by it. Well, I know you were blessed by it, but I can't wait to hear it myself. So thank you for uh, not filling in last week, but for being the called one for last week and ministering the word. Um, I'd like to close out. I've been sharing with you some things about what it means to be, to wear the mantle of ministry, what it actually means. We use, that word gets thrown around in conferences a lot, and it's almost like you could come to the altar, somebody lays hands on you, and boom, you got a mantle. Now you could go out and represent Jesus and his authority. And what I hope I've done successfully is communicate to you that being mantled for ministry is a maturing process. That we don't just, God doesn't give a mantle for somebody to occupy the throne of a king when he's a child. Um, that, that just doesn't happen. That's a curse to a nation when you have children as kings. Now I know you're all thinking about Josiah, but he had advisors while he grew. He was put under tutors. He was, he, I know, <laughs> and that's what all the children's pastors like to talk about. Well, Josiah started ruling when he was eight. He ruled when he was eight with wise advisors around him. He was wise enough from a young age to submit to their counsel and their advice. Anyway, that was not what I meant to share about. You gotta grow into it. So to be mantled for ministry means to be clothed with Christ. It means we carry his anointing in a package that's filled with grace and truth. So we, we get this, when we're born again, we're clothed with Christ. But as a child trying to wear an adult's garments, you have to grow to fill that mantle, and that's what the maturing process is. How many of you love the word process? Good, we got no liars in the church today. That's good. Well, you like process if you're wise, and you've walked with God for a while, I was, I was gonna say this anyway, you begin to love the process because you know, just like an athlete training for an event, when you're, my daughter's gotten into swimming this year and she knows what it's like to swim a two-mile practice and to be huffing and puffing and feel like nause, nauseous when you're in between sets and the day, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel exciting. But knowing what's gonna happen when you get to the big race, when you get to that big event, that you're gonna have it in you to do what's being required of your body, then you go back the next year and you love the process because now you experience the results of the process. And the world's been filled enough and sadly through church history, we've had enough of those who have carried offices of authority, they've carried anointing even. I hope we've seen through this. You can have an anointing but not have the fruit, you can have the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. That's a nightmare of a combination. People get hurt. People get damaged and bruised. Most everybody I've met who's been hurt in the church, it's been because of saints. Yeah, that happens. But most of the deepest hurts have come from leaders who just have a tremendous gift, but not the character behind it, not the love to back it up. Character simply means, maturity simply means we're converted to love. And that's why we carry his anointing in a package that's filled with grace and filled with truth, because that's what Jesus is. Moses came and he gave the law and Jesus came filled with grace and truth. And that's what we represent. That's that's what it means to be mantled for our ministry. A mantle represents kingdom authority. It represents what we were born to do. A mantle means being clothed with Christ. So on the outside, that means we look like on the outside what's already at work on the inside. Jesus on the outside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. I got that song in my head again. That there is Christ in us, the hope of glory is no longer going to be the hope of glory. Christ in us is being glorified by what happens on the outside of us. That's what it means to fill the mantle and carry it with grace and truth. So the goal of every believer, our goal, every last one of us, is to wear that mantle with an attitude of honor, knowing that it's the Lord that we carry. Like that donkey, we have Jesus on our back. It's not about us. It's not about anything to do with the package itself. It's about the fact that we get the honor of carrying the anointed one with us wherever we go, that we represent Christ and all of his authority. So we carry with honor and we carry with a sense of responsibility. And this is what I'm, I'm gonna keep applying that gentle pressure and I'll get more firm and firm about it as we all grow together in Christ. Because there ought to feel a sense of responsibility. We are responsible for what happens in our generation. 
We are responsible for the course of our nation. We are responsible for the culture of our village, or of our tough village, feels like that, of our town, of our valley. We are responsible for it. So instead of cursing the darkness, as someone said, how about we turn on the light? Take it out from under a bushel and be the light of the world. We ought to carry a sense of responsibility. So when that revelation dawned on me, I stopped the complaining. I mean, it still ekes out every once in a while when I make the mistake of watching the news more than five minutes. But instead of complaining about what's wrong out there, how about we just fill that mantle that God gave us and go out and do the stuff? How about we go out and have some birthday cake so some Muslim comes over and says, wow, you celebrate people like that? I gotta know about that Jesus. How about we get out there and start doing that kind of stuff and fill that mantle? Because that is what spiritual authority looks like. Spiritual authority is represented in what we call revival. You know how to know when the church has filled its mantle? it gets easy to find Jesus. It's easy to find the Lord. That's the, probably the simplest definition of a genuine revival I can offer, is that it come, for those that are, have been wandering in dark places, have been lost and buried under things, it's just like Jesus is everywhere. I don't have to seek him anymore because he's just everywhere to be found. That's when we know the church has filled its corporate mantle in a region. And that's a glorious day that we're moving into. And we are already experiencing that. We're, we're not there all the way yet. We haven't completely filled it yet. But there's some great and glorious things happening around this place. And I hope you got your eyes wide open to look at it. So I encourage you, shut off the TV start getting face-to-face with some real people. Preach it, Steve. Come on. That's a good word right there. Turn off the TV and start interacting with some real people because you're going to see that Jesus is at work changing people's lives changing people's hearts. And we fall into this trap where we think it's gotta be big, it's gotta be something that everybody can see, the whole world can see, that God's at work, and Jesus corrected that right out of the gate. He said, the kingdom of heaven does not come by observation, nor will men say, look here and look there. Why, Jesus, it should be easy to see when a kingdom has come. He said, no, because the kingdom of heaven is within you. And if you don't learn how to look inside of people's hearts and get face-to-face with real live people, not people that you read about, not people you see or hear about, but real live people, I'm telling you, I'm, I feel like I'm prophesying right now, that, that we're just going to be falling down into this pit of discouragement because the news out there, if you just get sucked into that, I'm telling you, that is a quick road to depression. That is a quick, man, you could talk yourself right into a valley in a heartbeat. Ten minutes in the news these days. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, the news ought to be a source of prayer. That's it. And if watching and hearing and getting information doesn't lead us to a place of intercession, at the end of which we feel a release and ready to go and do the work of the kingdom, I urge you to turn away from that, as in repent of that. Turn away from it, because then the news is nothing but gossip. I gotta keep on this for a few more minutes. If I don't know if I'm talking to anybody here or somebody watching at home, or maybe I'm just convincing myself because I need it again. But when we just get information for the sake of knowing something, that's just the, that's in the stream of gossip. That's in the stream, you know, it's called a tale bearer. I just gotta tell you the news. I gotta tell you what happened. Okay, what am I gonna do with that information when I hear it? Well, if hearing that information just gets me mad, upset, and now I've got us and them thinking going on, and all I'm is, I'm just mad all the time at somebody. I got a problem. There's something wrong. I'm in a stream of communication that is called corrupt communication. And the scripture is pretty clear. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is for edifying so that the hearer might be built up. That's the only kind of communication worth listening to. It's the only kind of communication worth speaking. So again, I urge you, just get face to face with some real people that you know who are in your life. There are plenty in our midst and there's plenty more out there who are desperate for the hope that lies within us. Plenty of them out there, desperate to have the Jesus that sometimes we take for granted because he's just so deep involved in our lives. They're there, they're here, let's do the stuff. Amen. Okay, so 
Let's finish out our story. We're going to come to the conclusion of Elisha's journey following Elijah. That was the vessel that God used in his life to bring him into the fullness of his anointing so that he would now carry the mantle that Elijah wears at this moment. He's going to be the next prophet of the nation. So Elijah, although there were 7,000 prophets in the nation plus, Elijah was the key prophet. He's the one calling down fire on Mount Carmel. He's the one speaking to the king, and whatever he says comes to pass. He's the one praying, and there's a drought. Then he prays again, and there's rain. God just invested him with that kind of authority in the nation of Israel and in the surrounding nations. He's anointing kings of foreign nations. Well, Elisha is about to pick up where Elijah left off, and it's the same transfer of authority that Jesus did with his apostles. He spent three and a half years with them. You know, if Jesus, if, if mantles of authority and mantles of ministry could come by impartation, do you think Jesus might have could have done it in one shot? Here I am, son of God in the earth. Come here, line up. Boo, boo, you're anointed. Go and preach good news. But there's something about the process. It took Jesus three and a half years. If it took Jesus three and a half years, the Son of God incarnate, best preacher who's ever lived, most anointed vessel who's ever walked the face of the earth. If it took him three and a half years to turn those clowns into ministers, I can assure you it's going to take us a little bit of time. And it seems to be about three and a half years. I'm not putting a time frame on. Some of us, you know, need more time. Some, I haven't met anybody who needs less than that. Some need more time. I needed more time. For me, from the day God said you're going to be a pastor until the day a prophet laid his hands and all the elders laid their hands on me and conferred, this is your office of pastor now, it was more than a decade. So some of us are slow learners. I think sometimes what my life's testimony and example is, is if that clown could do it, anybody could do it. Thanks for laughing, Warren. <laughs> the rest agree with me. So, like, you know. <laughs> so here it is. Here comes to the end of their journey. Elisha is about to move into a new stage. This is the transition. Transition. I've learned a lot about transition being married to a doula. My wife's a doula. If you don't know what that means, it's like an assistant at childbirth. It's not all the way midwife. She assists. She's, there. she's, she's a mama's helper and she's a daddy's savior. Because men don't have a clue what to do in that birth room. And, and Dre's there to make sure that the man doesn't say something and get hurt. <laughs> and she, so she's there. And, uh, you know, just hearing the stories when she comes back of, you know, all what God did and what happened in that. There's this moment called transition in childbirth. And it's the moment that there's no going back now. This is it. You're, uh, I'm not going to get physical and describe all of what's going on, but let's just say this is the point of no return. This, you're actually having a baby right now. And the pain that a woman experiences up until that point is painful. I'm not going to belittle the pain. I can't even imagine what it takes to do that. I've thought about it physically. My wife has models in the house now for when she does childbirth. I go, you mean, you mean a baby fits through that? That's insane. I just, I, it hurts me to think about it. But when that transition comes, and I remember when my wife was giving birth uh, and transition happened, she let out a yelp. And my wife is no woman to be trifled with. She is, she's got a high pain tolerance. She can handle it. She's been able to handle married to me for 30 years. She can handle a lot of pain. And she let out a cry in transition and the pain of that moment. Haven't experienced it, only heard about it. And I know my gallstones pale in comparison to the pain of what that, what that feels like, but that's transition. It is a painful moment that leads to life. Because for all six of our kids, well, five of the six without the C-section, within minutes after the birth, there's a peace that comes over that mama's face as she's holding that baby, and it was worth it. It was worth it enough my wife, for my wife to do that six times. That's why women give birth and not men. Because men would be like, I ain't doing that again. <laughs> Six times, holding that new life and looking at what got birthed on the other side of it makes the pain of transition worth it all. And I can tell you that it works the same in the spirit. There is a pain in birthing something new in our lives. There is a season that comes before that birth happens. You feel pregnant, you, you know, that third trimester, man, you talk about, wow. How do you guys do, women do that? I don't know how you do that. You're carrying that, and especially when you're third trimester in the summer, God bless you. Oh my goodness, I can't even fathom it. You're carrying it, and then you finally give birth. And at the end of it, 
You say, I would do it all over again for the sake of this precious life that I now get to have and to hold and raise up in Christ. It's worth it, and so it is in the Spirit. So we've looked at the journey. I won't take the time to review it all now. But Elijah said to him, they're in Jericho now. They've finished their three-city journey. I showed you how along the way there are plenty of places to stop and our growth in the Lord. We could stop at the place of the cross, which is Gilgal, and just live our life only thinking about repentance. So, you know, does God love me? I messed up. Oh, I need to be forgiven again. And that's all that we know and all we experience. And that's the beginning. And all of us start in that place of knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that God's a father, knowing that God's willing to circumcise our hearts and make us something brand new, covenant children of God. We get to behold the manner of love he's given us. So we'll be called the children of God. And that's Gilgal. But how many of you know the children is all well and good when you're a child? Children when you're 60, not so much. And so there's got to be some growth. And so the next place is Bethel, the place where you're experiencing this open heaven. You're experiencing the blessing of God. You experience the first fruits of ministry. You're to learn what it's like to interact with heaven. You're having this heavenly time where you're just growing and everything is just, wow, it's all about Jesus. You're learning how to overcome strongholds. You're getting the word of God abiding in you. And we're coming to that place. And some people live in that place. And that's, that's the ones who just kind of sit in seats on Sunday. And that's all they got to do with church. And that's it. Just feed me on Sunday and I'm going to go and do my life the rest of the week. But there's more. A lot of people stay in Bethel. I would propose the majority of the Western church is happy in Bethel. I'm blessed. I'm, I'm loving life with Jesus. But until that day dawns on us that there is a world out there full of people who don't yet experience that. And it's rises up in our heart. i got to go out and take some territory. There's some lives out there that are waiting for Christ in me to pour out into them. Then we, then we get away from there and we go to Jericho. That's the place of first fruits of victory. That's where we're testing and trying out our own mantle. We're trying out our own authority. We're going to take that city and we're going to do it by and to always do it that way from here and for the rest of our lives. That there's never going to be a point in time that we've matured so much we don't need Jesus anymore. That it's always got to be by faith. Whenever we just get all up in our own strength, we fail, we fall short, fine. Just return and remember your first love and remember it's only grace. It's only by the grace of God. It's because of Christ that we're able to do anything for the kingdom of heaven. Apart from that, we got nothing. Jesus said it. You can do nothing. I pray you guys learn it quicker than I did. Just learn it quicker than I did. No testimonies on that today. So it says, Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said again, Elijah, Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of prophets went. They stood opposite of them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So Elijah took his mantle, folded it together, struck the waters, and they were divided here and there. So the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now that may sound familiar to you because that's how Israel came into the promised land in the first place. So here's the journey that Elisha now must take. This is Elisha's transition happening right now because Jericho represents the dividing line between the two. Jericho for Israel, for the chosen people of God, when they were on the east side of, Jer of the Jordan, that was outside the promised land. They were not yet receiving the promise. They were still living in the wilderness at that point. They were still babes without their own land yet. But then there came that great and glorious day where Joshua told the priest, step into the river with the ark on your shoulder. The Lord held the waters back and they came through the Jordan on dry ground. They had their own Red Sea style miracle, which is the only way that we could go from the old into the new. And that's the cross that moment where God did what we could not do. God overcame the grave. Jesus overcame the grave while he was dead. That's what makes me so excited about Easter. If the Son of God can beat death while he's dead, what can't he do? So that's the Jordan. We're crossing over into the old and into the new. It has to be crossed to enter your promised land. 
Nobody comes into the promise of God without going through the Jordan River first. So what does the Jordan represent? Well, why do you think people are baptized in the Jordan in the scriptures? Why is it that river that you go down into to get buried in something? It was the be- before Jesus introduced the resurrection out the other side. John the baptizer was in the Jordan River burying people's sins in that river. Something's got to get buried before it can be resurrected again, and that's the Jordan. Too many of us try, and I've tried many times in my life, to enter into the new while still holding on to the old. And I want to tell you, if you pause in the middle of the Jordan River, when God puts the waters back, there's coming a moment, the water's going to come back in again, and you're going to get washed away. And I've seen so many make that mistake of holding on to the own, old and coming, trying to come into the new, but new. But Jordan is where we leave behind one season, and then we enter the new. This is transition. There's only one way to do transition. You got to go all in. Transition is a place where you're either on this side or you're on this side, and you can't have your feet in both. This is Elijah shouting to Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. But pick a side right now, because there's fire coming down from heaven. You want to be on the right side when that happens. I remember a couple of summers ago, my brother and I were on Cape Cod together, and there's this amusement park kind of place with bouncy houses and all, and it had a trapeze thing set up. And we were sitting there, and we realized, man, this is great entertainment right here. We don't need any, any TV. We're just watching newbies try out the trapeze for the first time. And I never tried it myself. I tried a bunch of other circus things, never got to try a trapeze. It's on my bucket list, and now I know where to go. This is a picture from a trapeze learning place out in Arizona. And there's this moment in trapeze. If you're by yourself, you're holding on to one bar and you gotta grab onto the new one. But what do you think happens if you don't let go of the old one and grab onto the new? <laughs> That's gonna hurt. So it was kind of funny watching people do that because you're holding on to what was safe a moment ago and it's so hard to let go. But if you don't let go, your arms are gonna go and then people would all flip and fall into the net below. And it was fun, we watched it for about an hour. My brother and I were just laughing at all these people, but I got to think that is transition. That is what transition's like. You cannot grab onto the new if you're holding onto the old. We can't maintain. Sometimes with God, it's a full reset. Everything that you once knew, everything that your life used to be, you're going into something brand new right now. But if you try to bring the old into that new, or you try to hold onto a little bit of what feels safe, it feels comfortable. It feels familiar, and we hold on to that, and you can't grab onto the new. You gotta grab onto that new thing with two hands. It's time to cross the Jordan, saints. It's time to come into a promised land, and we can't live on both sides. There were tribes, two and a half tribes. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan River, and they had nothing but conflict their entire days because they didn't come into the promised land. Now, God was generous enough and gracious enough through Moses. He said, fine, you want to stay over here? You can stay over here. You know, it's amazing. I did a study one time on this. The amount of territory that Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh occupied on the east side of the Jordan was almost exactly the same square mileage that was never occupied by Israel on the west side, which was the land given to them by promise. So they didn't take the whole promised land because two and a half tribes liked the green grass on the east side better. And sometimes it's a matter of letting go what's been comfortable, what we've been able to rely on, things that have become convenient, things that have become predictable. Now I recognize that some personality is at play in this and personally I love transition, I love adventure, I love the unknown. That's a personality thing, I get that. But for all who like the comfort and convenience and predictability of life, I just wanna propose to you that to fulfill the will of God there are going to be times that we're going to need to be stretched out of what's been comfortable and predictable. That's the realm of faith. It's, uh, sometimes now it gets beyond personality. Now it becomes a realm of if God said it, then I'd be in rebellion against God to stay here when God said, go to the other side. So here's Elisha following Elijah, and there's, a, there's this timing thing. Elijah threw his mantle down, smacked the water, and the water is parted. There was an open door, as we call it in Christianese. 
That, that is a Christianese term. You know that, right? You've got to translate that if you're talking to people that don't read the Bible. There's an open door. What, what are you talking about, open door? What, what does that even mean? Open door, because it's in Revelation. Open door means God has now given you passage into something new. Sometimes open door is obvious. Banging your mantle on the river and the water is part, pretty obvious. Walk through it. Sometimes the enemy knows how to make a false-looking open door. I shared my testimony with you. Three offers of promotion and raises when God said move to Pennsylvania with no promise of a job. That was not the Lord's open door. And the most difficult thing in discerning transition is the timing of it. Another thing I've learned from hearing stories of childbirth and experiencing some of it, you can't start pushing until the right time. You start pushing too soon, you will hurt yourself. And that's why, you know, the most frustrating thing I imagine for a woman to hear when you feel like pushing is don't push, don't push. Because you just want to get this baby out already. It's been hours, man, I'm done. Oh, I'm exhausted. But it's not time yet. If you push, you're going to hurt yourself. And sometimes we try to push the timing of the Lord because we're eager for what's next. And I get it. When we see what the Lord has in front of us, we get excited about this new thing, this next thing that God's bringing us into, and we want it yesterday. But the timing of the Lord, knowing the will of God, carrying his heart into the will of God, those two things are fairly easy for someone walking by faith. I would propose the most difficult part of transition is waiting on the timing of the Lord and being patient waiting for the Lord to open the door of transition. Now that requires faith and patience. And those two are great partners together. They go hand in hand. Because faith, this is where my personality has a great weakness in it. For me, if God said it, what are we waiting for? Now, then no better time than the present. Let's do it right now. I've been grateful most of the time to be surrounded by wise voices who are a little bit more cautious. And who say, oh, that might be God. But let's just pray about the timing of that. Because maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's six months from now. Thank you, Jesus and my wife. When, we, when my wife and I discern things together, we've learned we, there's a lot less conflict when I remember that although I might be the first one to catch a whiff of what the Spirit of God's doing in transition, she's much more keen on learning about the timing of the Lord, and that has rescued us from all kinds of disaster. Our very first prophetic word had that in it. So God wanted to make sure I knew that from early on. You hear something, you're ready to dive in face first, and look at where I landed, and, and that is. And for some of us here, how many of you just out of curiosity, informal poll how many of you are more wired that way god says it and you want it done you're ready to leap in yesterday all right keep your hands up put your other hand up if you are wise enough to keep people in your life that know how to slow you down all right good for you <laughs> i just observed a couple moments that's why i love preaching <laughs> i've got openings this week if you need yeah, i'm not going to make eye contact right now <laughs> oh that was hilarious distractingly hilarious waiting for that open door is key so for elisha there were opportunities for him to remain at gilgal the the prophets at at um gilgal or at uh, bethel rather they said hey you know your father's gonna be taken from you stay here you can have a great ministry he said nope not time yet he got to jericho the prophets did the same thing he said nope i'm staying with elijah because that's where the call of God is for me. He crosses over the Jordan. And when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now this is a critical moment in their journey. He crossed over to the other side. Elijah knows. Do you know, do you know at this point of Elijah's journey, we haven't really talked about him a whole lot because Elisha is really the focus in the journey part of this. But Elijah at this point has already been disqualified from ministry. He went into that cave after Mount Carmel. He argued with God. And God said, okay, I, I, you know, you think you're the only one. I got 7,000. So since you want to be done, I'm going to take you out of this cave of depression. And I want you to go and anoint someone else. There was no reason other than Elijah for Elijah's ministry to be done at that point. Now he'd been faithful on down on Elijah. It's hard being a forerunner. It's hard being the first. It's, it's nothing but warfare. And that's all Elijah had in his life. But at this point in their journey together, Elijah's being taken up into heaven. Now that's his reward, faithfulness. But he's finished with ministry here on the earth. 
But Elisha stayed faithful to him, even though he was washed up and his ministry was over. Elisha, because of the call of God and attaching himself to this man, stayed with him. And so Elijah observed that and he turned to him and said, I gotta, I gotta bless that. I mean, all the other prophets, they're saying, hey, he's gonna be taken away, he's a washed up old prophet. And here's Elisha, still washing my hands, still ministering to me. So he asked him, what can I do for you? You know, I, I wanna bless you before I go. What, what, what would you like? And here's, here's where Elisha's heart is completely revealed and why Elisha became twice as fruitful as Elijah was. He did twice the miracles. He was setting up kings. He just did incredible things. Elijah is the name most people recognize, but Elisha actually had far more of a miraculous, anointed ministry than even Elijah had. And so he said, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. The amazing thing about Elisha in comparison to many who seek positions of leadership today is he never asked for the mantle. He never said, I'm hanging on because, man, you got a mantle that belongs to me. And the only reason why I'm still with you is because it's still on you. And as soon as you're done with that thing, I'm here, I'm going to take it. That wasn't what Elisha was about at all. He said, look, I see something in you. I've been watching your ministry over the years. And although many people don't recognize, it was your prayer that brought that drought. Time will tell when the scriptures get written, but nobody else knows that. You did that in the secret place. I I know something about you, Elijah. You are the strength of Israel, and I want that spirit. If I'm gonna have to carry a mantle of authority, and I'm gonna be God's representation to your chosen people, then I better have your spirit, because I know I need something right now that you carry because God trusted you with it for a reason, not any of the other 7,000. There's something in you that God saw, and I need what's in you to be successful at what God's now called me to do, and it's not your mantle. It's not your mantle. It's what's in you. It's your spirit. He said, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. That's a bold request. That is the, the heritage or the inheritance of the firstborn son. In Israel, the custom was the firstborn son would get twice as much as all the other kids. I have a theory about that, having raised six kids. The first son, first daughter, is the experimental child. You have no idea what you're doing. So you get all your dumb stuff out on the firstborn, so they get twice as much as the rest. (laughs) Just my theory. Anyway, I don't have a spiritual answer for that. It's just that they get twice as much because they're the ones that opened up the womb and they brought the family. They were the first in, and so they get a double portion. He said, I would like the inheritance of the firstborn, but I'm not after your mantle, I'm not after your money. I want what's in you. I want to carry that same spirit. I'm going to honor your legacy by living your legacy and taking it to places that you didn't have time to get to with it. I want to start out with twice as much to get me started on my journey of what you've been carrying. Leaders who seek position before carrying the heart of leadership are not ready for leadership. Leaders who seek position, people who are climbing the corporate ladder, as it were, and you better believe there exists one in the body of Christ. People who are seeking more authority, seeking offices of authority, but don't yet have the heart of a leader. What's the heart of a leader? The heart of a leader is ready to lay down his life for the sheep. The heart of a leader is a heart of love. The heart of a leader is, it's not about me. It's about the people that I get to bless because of the mantle that God's giving me. That's the heart of leadership. And there are many. There have been some who have come and gone through this church. You probably don't know who they are because I stop them at the door. First time they asked for a position, they asked for, you know, I want to lead, I used to lead worship at this other church and I feel like God's called me here. I said, great, we have an opening in children's ministry for you. We, have some, we need somebody to take care of the babies, third Sunday of the month. I'll sign you up right now. I never see them again. That actually happened. It was like 10 years ago now, but that actually happened. People who are seeking a position of leadership, who wants to work for a boss at your company whose only goal was to occupy that chair? with a six-figure salary, and I, I got to be in charge, and I got a team of 50 people. I don't care who those 50 people are. I just get to lead. I'm a captain over 50. How many of you have served under leadership like that and hope never to have to do it again? God's looking for people who are willing to first apprehend his heart. That's what the process is all about. 
all of the process of our journey with God, the hardships that come our way, the warfare that the enemy sends our way to try to block us in that path of growth, all of it's about the same thing. It's to train us in love, and I mean sacrificial love. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, look, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you have not many fathers. Why did Paul get to say, I'm like a father to you? Did you ever read the story of Paul on his journey all the way till he finally got to Corinth? Do you know that Corinth was the first city that Paul preached at? And he'd been to a dozen named cities by then. It was the first city that Paul got to where he didn't get beat up, whipped, beaten with rods, left for dead, stoned and left for dead. It was the very first time that didn't happen to him. It's an amazing story. Why could Paul be entrusted with that kind of authority? He had already long since demonstrated, I will die for the sake of bringing Christ to one more village. That's the heart of a leader. That's the heart that God's after. That's the purpose of the process. I would like to have authority, Lord, because you promised it so that I could be a blessing. That's authority. That's the heart of a leader. So a spirit can't be imparted through the laying on of hands. You can get an anointing. You can receive gifts of the Spirit that way. You can even receive prophecy and all kinds of other things that will build you up and edify us. I love prophecy. I love receiving impartation from those who carry it. But gifts can be imparted. A spirit cannot be imparted. What's in somebody that causes them to fill that mantle? No, that's a journey. That's a process. That comes through relationship. I spent my first 10 years in Christ serving at Phil Capuccio's church. I got to preach three times in those 10 years, all the while knowing, I met him, I was in seminary, all the while knowing I'm called to ministry. I already, I'm, I know enough Greek to translate some of the books in the New Testament. I know enough Hebrew to translate some of the Psalms on my own. But God said, yeah, that's all well and good. 10 years, because you got a lot of work, son. There's a lot to do in your heart, and you need to catch the spirit of this faithful man of God first before I'm going to trust you with any of my people. And I thank God every day of my life for that decade of training, washing toilets, taking care of the kids, setting up and breaking down sound equipment, and playing drums every Sunday morning. And I would do it all over again for the sake of what I had in Christ the first day those hands got laid on me, and now I was going to be a shepherd to God's people. And I, I just, that, that process, whatever the call is, for me the call was toward pastoral ministry. What's your call? What is your mantle for? Who are the people who will benefit from whatever it is that Christ, such an anointed mind and an ability to do so much, but you recognize because of the current season and the call of God, you're going to pour your whole self out into your children and raise up sons who will love God and who will minister right along with you. You fill in your mantle with joy and the world's never going to be the same because of the legacy that you're imparting to your kids. Every one of us has a mantle to fill. Every one of us. It's not, there's a small group of people and hopefully that's all it should take to build up and edify the body of Christ so that the body can do all the works of ministry out there. I can't wait to see all of what y'all are gonna do when you get out there and fill your mantle. This valley's never gonna be the same. This world is never gonna be the same. But a spirit can't be imparted at a seminar on a Sunday morning. A spirit comes through relationship. It comes through living with somebody. Even Jesus didn't do it in a weekend. There's no Jesus seminar. He didn't offer that. He didn't say, come on, everybody, gather, and at the end of it, I'm going to lay hands on all of you. I'm not, hopefully you don't hear me in the wrong way. I'm not bashing that. I love going to those. I love receiving from world-anointed world ministries. They have an international platform for a reason because they got a 10-talent measure of anointing in that area. But you can't substitute attending a weekend conference for living a life. You can't go from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop without learning how to live in the valleys in between, without learning how to put into practice what you got there and what you get each and every time. The saints of God gather together with Jesus until we put it into practice and express the love of God that we've received. We're not growing and we're not filling any mantle. And that's what keeps a nation stagnant and even slipping away when a church remains immature like that. So they crossed over. Elijah asked him for that double portion of his spirit. And then he says this. Then he goes on. While they were going along and talking, behold. Oh, he said, you've asked a hard thing. Thank you, Karen. You're ahead of me again. 
He said, you've asked a hard thing. In other words, Elijah said, that's not mine to give. That's something the Lord's got to do. As it was when I laid my mantle on you, the rest is in your court, and it's between you and God at this point. But the Lord just gave me something for you. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. This is the first time Elijah is confirming Elisha following him all this time. He's saying, Elisha, I think I get it why you never stay where I tell you to stay. Every time I tell you, stay here, he's like, yeah, no, surely as the Lord lives and you live. And I'm, you know, I'm tired of hearing that, but now I think I get it. I think I recognize now that your journey to fill the mantle that the Lord told me to give to you is dependent on you staying with me. So let's talk. And I just love, I love to know what they were talking about. Almost as much as I want to hear Jesus talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I want to hear what Elijah and Elisha were talking about. Because it says, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So if you have a Sunday school book or a kid's Bible, I'm serious about this. And it has a picture of Elijah sitting in a chariot of fire going up to heaven. Rip it out. I don't know. I got a thing about that because I was a children's pastor and I'd get curriculum. I'd go through it. That's not what happened. You know, you get like, I'm sorry, there's a little bit of a soapbox, but can I vent for one moment? Just one, one more quick moment. You know those little ark pictures they got? This is a little ark and it's got like a giraffe sticking out one of the windows and an elephant sitting up on the front. It almost feels like a mockery to me because that was real. And that thing was huge. That thing, was, yeah, you need a football field for that thing. And to think that one giraffe's gonna stick out its neck half the length of the ark, that belittles it. To me, that belittles it, bothers me. And it bothers me when people do children's books and don't care about being biblically accurate. There, I'm done. He was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And this chariot came as a vision for Elisha so that he could see spiritually. He said, let a double portion of your spirit rest upon me. This was God saying, here's what his spirit looks like. This is the horses and chariot of Israel. You want to know why under Elijah's ministry, revival came to the land? So you, do you want to see in the spirit what's been going on around this man? He's been like horses and chariots protecting Israel. All of this time, all the days of his prophetic ministry, he's been cultivating and protecting it from spiritual onslaught that would have destroyed it completely. He is the reason why Israel has remained blessed. I have used this man that profoundly. And that's why Elisha cried out and he saw it. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He saw a revelation. That's what this man's anointing was. He's like the chariots and horses of Israel. You could trust in horses, you could trust in natural chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. And that, in that moment, Elisha saw spiritually, man, this man's been doing even more than I realized. Because of this man's faithfulness to the call of God on his life, this man's faithfulness to wear that mantle, even though he, he was facing spiritual warfare like none of us in this room have ever encountered. You're talking about a witch who was like the chief prophet of Baal as queen of the nation and a hapless husband who let her do whatever she wanted to do. And, and the, I mean, the demonic worship that was going on. And Elijah, along with 7,000 other prophets, but Elijah at the head withstood all of that and brought revival and reign to the land. And Elisha's looking at that. You know, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel, what you have done for this nation Oh, I just wish everybody would know how much you've done so that we could all thank you for what you've accomplished. And he saw Elijah no more. And he took hold of his clothes and tore them in two pieces. He rent his garments, which is the sign of grieving. I am mourning right now. I'm rending my garments right now because I am in grief because I recognize the magnitude of what we just lost. Heaven's gain, our loss. So the single most important quality of leadership is to carry a protective love for the ones we lead with a readiness to lay down our lives for them. That's what Elisha saw in those horses and chariots. Horse and chariots go out first. They're putting themselves in harm's way. I mean, in that kind of ancient warfare. They're the ones going straight into the armies to part the armies and run them over. 
but they're putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of protecting all those who are behind. That's what leadership is about. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hireling, not so much. Hireling sees the wolves and he flees. But if we want to carry leadership, kingdom leadership, kingdom authority, if we want to wear a mantle of Christ, what it means is we're prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. Now I've been getting these stories and following groups that are in Ukraine right now, pastors, missionaries, people who have said, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay here in Kiev. I'm going to stay here in this city that's being bombed right now. I see the tanks. I hear the rumbles. I hear the explosions. But my people are here. I'm not going anywhere. I read those things, and part of my heart says, God, make me that courageous if the day would ever come. And then part of me says, the lion of the tribe of Judah is in every one of us, and you better believe every one of us has that in us. That's kingdom leadership. So we've grown and matured to the place of carrying that kind of love for the people. We're not ready for leadership yet. Recognizing and honoring those who have embodied that is a key to carrying that heart ourselves. There is so much dishonor toward the generation before in our generation. There is so much dishonor to those who have carried offices of authority who maybe have fallen into sin or they, they, they fell apart in the middle of spiritual warfare and we throw them under the bus. We dishonor them so easily and so readily. The church sometimes, we're such mean-spirited gossips about those who have been in positions of intense leadership. And, and the truth is not a one of us understands the pressure, not a one of us understands the temptations that come when you sit in places like that. The outright planned, intentional temptations that come your way. I remember going down with David Barton and Wall Builders Ministry to D.C. one year for a pastor's prayer breakfast they had. And they have um, representatives and senators that come out and they share what's going on in D.C. And I'll never forget one of them. I didn't know his name. He was a representative from somewhere out west. And he said, I could not believe, this man's on fire for the Lord. He said, I could not believe what happened to me my first year in Washington. I had women who were paid they were paid to seduce me so that they could go out and tell the story and ruin my reputation. I've had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes offered me, sometimes just left on my desk so that they could entrap me and have you know, dirt on me and blackmail me because of that. He said, it's been every day since I arrived in Washington, D.C. And then forget it. When you get in committees and you get to all the political machinery of this place, you wouldn't believe the things that get thrown your way. And, and the truth is, we could, say, we could rail all we want about those who go to those places and fall, but the truth is none of us understands that level of temptation. And that's why there is this preparation. That's, that's why there's this journey. And part of that journey involves honoring those who have gone before. Yeah, they've got weaknesses. Who doesn't? Which one of us didn't have a father who had weaknesses? Which one of us in this room didn't have a mother who had weaknesses? That doesn't give us license to speak dishonorably, and it doesn't give us license to cut them off and treat them with contempt. We just don't get that. If we want to carry kingdom authority, we can't carry that attitude toward those who have gone before. Thank God for them. Learn from the mistakes. Ask God for the grace not to repeat the mistakes. But we don't speak dishonorably about those who have gone before, no matter what failures they've had. Amen? So Elisha was the one who said, my father, my father. You notice Elijah never once referred to Elisha, my son, my son. It was Elisha that carried this revelation that this man is as a father to me, and so it must be. In all kingdom relationships, I do believe in father-son, mother-daughter-style relationships in the body of Christ. We're a family. You can't escape it when you read the New Testament. Paul, John, they all refer to my little children. They have this affection for the saints of God, especially the newborn babes, like a father has for his own biological children. And there's this affection. You can't get around that language. But the relationship begins sons to the father at the invitation of a father. That's the basic. I won't go really far deep into this. This is something I share with leadership here at the church, that these kind of relationships, no shortcut to ministry. I started out in a shortcut to ministry thinking three years of seminary would prepare me for pastoral ministry. And even though I dropped out, I now still feel like I could write the book, Things I Wish They Would Have Told Me in Seminary. 
There's, there's life experience that has to happen along the way. So calling someone a father is not merely a matter of submitting to authority. It's a matter of opening the heart for instruction and growth. Too often we think of authority structures. We're just Westerners, so we think, you know, who's in charge? Father's in charge of the house. Father knows best. Father's boss. And that's the, like, hierarchy of authority in the body of Christ. And that's not how this kingdom works. This kingdom is all free will love offering. God did not force us to become disciples. We of our own free will, once he set us free from bondage and had a free will again, we of our free will said, you're my God, you're my Lord, I will follow you for the rest of my life. And so it is with all relationships in the body of Christ. No one is Lord and master over anyone else. Not in this kingdom, that's not how it was in the beginning, and that's not how it is in this kingdom. We're, we got Eden restored again. It's a matter of opening the heart. So in other words, if you're in a position of receiving from someone, and this is, this is where it comes down in the natural, if you're genuinely receiving somebody as a father, and you use that terminology, it doesn't just mean I'm submitted to your authority, I'm submitted to your leadership. There is that. There has to be somebody who's you know, calling the shots. That, that's what the gift of leadership is. Somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to be the center. You, you know one way of knowing that you have that gift? If you go into a situation and something needs to be done and nobody's taking charge, you get very frustrated. And there, every, it takes everything in you not to just take charge because it's frustrating that nobody's doing what needs to get done. That's one way to know when you have that gift. That's leadership. But it's a matter of the heart. To be a son in ministry means I am open to the core. That's what I did with Focapuccio. Once I understood these things, and I recognized I got a man of God, and he speaks Bronx, which means he doesn't mince words, and he's not going to take five minutes to say what could be said in one sentence. And I loved it with my native language. And I knew that he would tell me. He would rebuke me. He would even use words like that. Rebuke. Correct. I've recognized my need for it. And I opened myself to the core, began to confess things to him. There were struggles in my life. I began to ask him before he had to point it out. I mean, the fact that he's a prophet made it a little bit easier because all the way in the half-mile walk from my house to his house when I'd go for meetings with him, I'd repent of every known sin because I didn't want God to show it to him when I got there. So I would do that. But there also, there has to come this free will. Following someone in authority has to be a matter of love not fear. See, we, we use those terms. Following someone in authority must be a matter of love, not fear. So fear means if I cross you in any way, something bad's going to happen to me. So if I share something with you you don't want to hear, then I'm afraid I'm going to get punished for it. I'm going to afraid you might say something I don't like as a result. And so out of fear, I'm going to submit to your leadership, but I'm not really from the heart submitted to your leadership. That's like how we say in parenting, when you tell your child, sit down, you want from the heart that they want to sit down. But how many of you know you could be sitting down in the natural and standing up in your heart? That's not submission. That's not, that's not what it means. It means from the heart, I'm open to the core, and I recognize that there's something in you that the Lord has connected us, and following you is how I follow the Lord. And that's a love-based relationship. So that decision is as important on the part of the one following as it is on the one leading. Yes, there are abusive leaders. Yes, there are those who use their authority in a way to put people down. We will never permit somebody to lead in this church who leads that way. It's just not going to happen here. Leadership means the larger your mantle, the broader your shoulders, the more people you're responsible to build up in Christ. That's leadership 101 in the kingdom, and that's how we roll here at Hillside. So, but, but it means that those following also, there, there's an onus on us who follow, and all of us are in both positions as we grow. There's an onus on us to say, I'm open to your correction, I'm open to your instruction, I'm open to your leadership of my own free will. This is how Paul said it to the Corinthians. If you want to read a scathing letter to a church, read 1 Corinthians. He would tell them off. He, he, man, all 15 chapters, 16 chapters of that book, he telling the church off until he got to the love chapter. And even that was telling them off. Because he was basically saying, you are not any of these things the way you're behaving right now. He didn't say it angry like that. That's just kind of a 
Maybe he did. I, you know, I, I try to summarize each book of the Bible with a one-liner. I just think it's fun to try to absorb the full meaning of a book in a one-liner. First Corinthians is, don't make me come down there. <laughs> That's Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I heard about what's been going on. Don't make me come down there. He even says that straight out in one part. But he said this to the Corinthians in his follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians. It's a more gentle letter. It's a more, more of an appeal to let's reconnect now. We have a special relationship, and you've tried to sever it with the way you've been behaving toward me, but I love you. I am willing to go there, and I'm willing to die in your city as I've been willing to die everywhere else for my love for you. And he points something out to them. He said, our mouth is spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affections. In other words, what, what power do we have over you? I mean, are we going to lock you up in chains because you don't do what we tell you the Lord says to do? Are we going to punish you in some kind of way? I mean, what really do I have over you, Corinthians? It's your love for us. You know on the inside that God's connected us, and so we're putting it on you. Demonstrate that love. Receive us again as you did when we first got there because the fact that you're even in Christ is because we traveled a quarter of the way around the globe to come and bring Christ to you, and we stayed with you, laid a foundation in Christ, and, and we love you. So be restrained again by your own affections. Uh, and a like exchange, I speak as children, open wide to us. It's a language of appeal. That is the language of authority in the kingdom. It's not the language of command. It's the language of appeal. I appeal to you. You hear me do that from this pulpit all the time. I've got no right to tell anybody in this room what to do. I'm not that kind of a father in this house, and that's not what spiritual authority is for. You got the scriptures to tell you more than I'll ever do with far more authority. You have Jesus himself to tell you far more than this mouth could ever give you. I'm here to appeal to you to follow what's in your heart to follow Christ in you, to follow the word of God. I'm here to appeal, and I'll get on my knees and beg if I have to, because I love you all that much. That's what spiritual authority is like. It's the language of appeal. Open wide to us. So, let's finish. Elisha then took up the mantle. Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, not a chariot of fire, taken up in a whirlwind. He, he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Now is a moment of truth. Because now there's no Elijah. He's not under someone else's mantle anymore. Do you know, I experienced this in pastoral ministry. For seven years I served as first a children and family pastor and then as a right-hand man to Pastor Dave at Christ Community Church. And during that time, I was able to experience wonderful things. I mean, there, it was a church of 2,000 then, and there was just a lot of stuff going on, and I was experiencing fruit in ministry. And there were, I mean, 2,000 people at that church, and I was past Dave's right-hand man. I thought, man, coming to Hillside, there's only at that time 30 people. That's going to be a breeze after this. And then I realized when I got here, I'm not under Dave Hess's mantle anymore. His leadership was carrying some things, and I got to enjoy the benefit of that, and I was having a blast. And I used to, I had to repent, and I did. I went back to Pastor Dave and repented of the judgments I made about him sometimes, because I thought, man, if I was senior pastor, I would blah, 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 blah. And that's about all my words were worth, blah, 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 blah. Because <laughs> I didn't know what it feels like to sit in that office. I didn't know what it felt like to wear that mantle. The le senior leadership position, once I got here, there might have been 30 and then 200 people. It was a whole different bird. And it's just like that on your job. You can criticize your supervisor all you want, but guard your words. Because you sit in that chair, it's a whole different game when you can't blame the man anymore. Because you are the man. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you got quiet. Don't blame the man. Because one day you're going to be the man. Because that's what God's plan is for you. You're going to be given authority and how you speak about those in authority now is how those under your authority will speak about you. You better believe it's sowing and reaping, and you can't escape it. And so once I started to see that, I had a conversation with Pastor Dave, and I repented of that. <laughs> I'm not going to rest under that cloud as I'm trying to pastor a church. 
It works the same anywhere that authority matters. How we handle being under authority is how we'll handle being in authority. So here comes this moment now. The mantle's all Elisha's, and there's no Elijah to back him up. He's been taken up into heaven. And so he calls out to God. He took the mantle that Elijah that fell from him. He struck the waters and he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Because by the way, there were all these prophets still watching on the other side of the Jordan. How embarrassing would that have been? On the way across the river, Elijah strikes the river and it parts and they walk across. On the way back, Elisha takes that mantle and nothing. And all the prophets are watching. This was a moment of truth. But because this man had walked the journey, this man had been faithful to serve, follow his way into leadership. This man had been faithful with a little. Now God was able to entrust him with that mantle and it carried all the authority it did for Elijah. The waters parted, he struck it, and he crossed back over now into his own promised land. And I encourage you to read 2 Kings, first few chapters, and read all about Elisha's ministry. There's your homework. Read about his ministry. Because he took what Elijah started and he took it to a whole new level and blessed the nations, not just Israel, the nations surrounding him. Foreign kings were looking to him for help by the end of his story. It's just an extraordinary story. That is every one of our destiny, to have that kind of story. Would you please stand on your feet with me? <laughs> so as I was beginning to pray into and prepare for this series, I'd envisioned this ending with a time of laying on of hands for those who feel called into ministry and feel called into leadership. And then like I just shared a few minutes ago, you can't get it by laying on of hands, so I'm not gonna do that. But I am gonna pray that God will open your eyes, hopefully by what I've shared over the last five weeks um, in this word. Hopefully God will open your eyes to see the path and the journey that's in front of you. I've shared it as a prophetic parable, how Elisha followed Elijah into his mantle. But what's your next step right now? What is the place that you find yourself now? Maybe you are already experiencing the fullness of your mantle, and you're gonna carry that. You're gonna still grow, you're still gonna mature, there's still gonna be things to learn, but right now you say, you know what? I'm living the dream. I am doing what I was born to do, and I'm doing it as like a mature father would, and my ministry and my life is now a blessing. And I have this mindset where I'm always looking to be a blessing. Praise God. We do have fathers and mothers in this house. We do. Maybe you find yourself somewhere, like maybe you're at Jericho right now, and you're beginning to experience the first fruits of your own victory, but you haven't yet found your mantle where you're carrying it on your own, where you're saying, even if I have no backup, me and the Lord, we got this. Maybe you haven't entered into that, and I want to pray right now that you see your way through the Jordan and back again so you come into your own promised land. Maybe you're finding yourself at Bethel or Gilgal, and you're new in Christ, and you're just growing and maturing. Please do not feel rushed in your journey by anything you've heard today or in these last few weeks. Do not rush the process. You can't. You can't make a five-year-old be a 15-year-old overnight. You just can't. There's a process. There's a journey. There's time that it's gonna take. Take your time. Learn the lessons along the way. Be faithful with whatever's in front of you. Whatever you find in your hands to do, just do it with all your might and trust God to get you to the next step when it's time. You're gonna find yourself on that plow being faithful. Next thing you know, you're gonna look up and there's the prophet putting the mantle on your shoulders and you didn't even know how close you were to that because you were just being faithful with what God gave to you. I'm really excited to see what God's gonna do with this. Um, I, I do want to just say this before I pray so I don't forget. Uh, somebody just did this, and it's been a while since I asked, or maybe I did a couple of weeks ago, I don't know. But if you're a part of Hillside, whether a member or you're regular, connected at Hillside, if I don't yet have a copy of your prophecies, if you've had words of prophecy from other places, would you please get those to me? Because I'm in a season right now where I'm, I'm marinating in our prophecies, personal prophecies that many of you have had since I've been here, some that you gave to me when I arrived. Um, you know that that's, that's one of the ways I've just learned to roll. If I want to get to know somebody, I want to know you by face to face, but I also want to know what God has said about you. I trust that a lot more than my own judgment. So I want to hear what God has said. So if you have prophecies from other places, would you please get those to me? If they're typed out, awesome. I retain things much better when I read. 
But if they're verbal, whatever, just please get them to me because I really want to be faithful with this. God's really just put it in my heart to do. So, um, so do that. All right. Father, we, we present ourselves before you, all of us, as Elisha's. Every one of us in some place in our process of growing in you, some place in our process of either understanding what that mantle of leadership is, what the call of God is on our lives, some of us in various stages of growing to fill that mantle, but all of us present ourselves in our journey as Elisha's and pray that you will come and show yourself faithful in our journey. I pray for every saint of God, whether at home or whether here in the room right now, that there'd be a keen awareness of what the next step is. Make us faithful with just what the next step is. I pray that you would set us free of the burden of trying to make the journey happen, of trying to force your hand and even the timing of our journey with you. We divest ourselves of that way of thinking. We just say, Lord, show us what's right in front of us right now so that we could say, this is the day that the Lord's made, and I'm just going to rejoice and be glad in it. I pray there'd be a, a real faith to release and to trust you with the things that need to be released, the things that we think need figuring out that you've already got a plan for. I pray there'd be real grace to lay those things aside right now. Every anxious thought, Oh, God, rescue us from any anxious thought concerning our plan, your plan for our lives. God, set us free from that way of thinking as if we have to make it happen. I pray that there would be a smooth ride, even through seasons of turmoil, even through bumpy roads, even through times where there's mountains in our way, even times when it just seems like the, the journey is a struggle, times of transition, even where there's pain. I pray that you'll make your yoke easy and your burden light and that you'll be with us in such a way that we feel carried, mounted up on wings like an eagle. Holy Spirit, come and just take us into that which you have for us, that there'd be glad tidings of great joy coming out of every one of our lives. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I just want to give a big group hug right now. I love you all so much. Glad to be back with you, and I'll see you in the plan. <laughs>